The final take for me, my summary on what we discussed is, you know, images and videos are great. Um, keep them short, keep them elegant, keep, um, make sure that you don't force it though. Be a minimalist as you approach not just video and images, but also other modalities for learning and development. And when you do that, you keep your mutant learner in mind and they will appreciate you for it. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are and wherever you're watching or listening from. My name is Matt Pierce. I'm the host of the Visual Lounge and we're where we talk about using video and images in the, the workplace. Particularly, we're going to be talking about learning today. We're going to be talking about learning strategies and how your organization might be able to benefit from having some more strategy around the learning. And whether you're a professional like learning and development uh, creator, trainer, whatever it might be, or you've just been tasked with the role, I'm sure there's going to be something great for you today. So with that said, Let's jump in and introduce our guests. Trion Mueller is a South African-American with a made-up French name who once managed an Italian restaurant. He has spent the past two decades helping some of the largest learning and development companies in the world with their behavior change and digital transformation initiatives. Some of his roles have included CEO and founder, chief strategy architect, chief product officer, chief e-learning architect, and Trion is also a go-to expert, author, and problem solver who knows what learners want, how they want it, and what to do about it. Trion has a master's degree in instructional technology and learning science and is currently a PhD student in the same field. He is the author of several books and publications, including a new book coming soon, The Rise of the Mutant Learner. With that said, help me welcome to our visual lounge, Trion Mueller. Thank hey. you, Matt. Well, it's great to be here. Trion, it, it, it is a pleasure to have you here. It, you know, we, we met just a couple months ago and it was just like, I felt like this kind of instant like connection, getting to know you over a, a, a cup of Sprite, I believe it was. It was at, down in um, Texas. That's right. That's right. Now we're going to clear something up for everybody. I, you're South African-American, which is, you know, we don't hear that. So that's the accent we're hearing, I'm assuming. Correct. I was born and raised in South Africa, but I am now an American citizen. Well, we're, we're happy for you and we're glad that we get to talk to you today. So let's, let's dive into our first couple questions because we'd like to get those moving and we want to get to good content. So you, you got a lot, all this, you've got, I mean, impressive resume. I was out on LinkedIn looking at all the places you've been and all the things you've done. It's, it's quite a, a, quite a good resume. Um, but how did you get involved with starting to use images and videos? And, and what did that look like for you originally? That's a great question. I, you know, a lot of people probably say this, but I definitely prefer seeing a visual of something more than just being told about it. I think we all relate that way. Um, so I've been using it throughout my life as much as possible. I'm actually um, a very, I'm an amateur caricaturist. All right. And and uh, I, I, I dabble and doodle in that, and, and it's fun. When I, it helps me to, um, when I'm visually drawing someone's face, to really catch the essence of what makes them different. Anyway, so I, I love visuals, but video has captured my imagination since um, I can, as early as I can remember, but I especially remember Indiana Jones and the, the trilogy growing up and, and loving the adventure that it was able to take me in. Um, as I watched and participated by watching. Yeah. Well, well, two things here. One, I love that you're a characterist character, however we say it. Right. I love that. that 
I, I don't want to see mine because I don't want to know what, what defines me. But I, I love that, that you're thinking visually. And then you're right. Like, I love this idea that story uh, video, it can, it can transport you to someplace different. I remember being in the theaters, you know, uh, uh, Indiana Jones Temple of Doom and just being a kid being like, oh, my gosh, here I am. And, and this story, which is which is pretty crazy. So next question for you, Trion, how do you define success for learning content? And I know this is a big question. But what's it kind of at the essence of success look like for, for learning? You know, that is be the question that uh, I guess you can call it the million dollar question that's been asked um, for as long as we can remember it in the space. Because the term return on investment or ROI has been batted around for a long time. And so what I do with all the clients and companies I work with is I ensure that every piece of learning content that we create is attached to some form of success metrics. And that depends on what it is you are um, creating and who you're creating it for, what you want them to do. But it's important to understand not only just the learning objectives, which is more uh, sterile, I guess, it wouldn't relate to what you want the learner to come out of it, but you also need to go deeper and attach what it is you want to, uh, the success you want to measure coming out of this experience. So I ask, why are you doing it? So it's important that you get your learners from A to B. I call it the space between. What you do in the space between is the key. And But then what is B? And can you measure that it is successful or not? That's the key. Yeah, so I, I love that. So you've got your learner objectives and then you've got the thing that the company wants to know. Did you improve productivity? Did you improve, reduce waste or uh, you know, whatever the outcome is, right? And can you can you get to that? And I think that's probably the harder thing. People listening to this or watching this might be saying, well, well, that's a real challenge here, right? How do we get to that point? And uh, we'll maybe come back to that question in just a minute. So as we wrap up kind of section one here, what is one tip that you could give the audience to improve using either either images or videos in their work? So thinking from a learning perspective, you're you're doing this a little bit. What What would you recommend? Well, I definitely have a suggestion or tip for both. So I would, when you use images, use the image. Um, I'm at, in one of the books I wrote, there's a principle called Shut Down the Ugly. And that's in the webinar manifesto. Uh, but the point I make there is, why do we always rely on a PowerPoint way of thinking when we throw up a little thumbnail of an image and then we write in bullet points what that image is trying to convey in our minds, right? Mm -hmm. What's the purpose of that? I'd get rid of all the bullets and all the copy if whenever possible and just flood that entire slide. If you're using PowerPoint, um, use that entire slide just for the image. Because remember, the human brain is an amazing thing. It can connect the dots without us having to be that prescriptive in connecting the dots. And also, if we're verbally saying something, why do we have to have it up on the slide? So that's a, that's a visual tip. Uh, the video tip is keep it short for the same reason I just mentioned. Um, people nowadays, our attention spans are shorter. We we like short, we like micro. And you know what? We don't want to listen to, especially a talking head for a long period of time, unless that person is super engaging. And even then, you know, lean on the shorter side of things. All right. So we so we got our marching orders. We had to fly through these things because we don't, we want to keep it short. But I love that what you said. I'm a fan of, Big image on the PowerPoint, make that the focus, maybe a word or two to 
give reference. Uh, I, I know you probably have the same experience. People ask you for your PowerPoint presentations all the time. People yes. ask me for mine and I'm like, you know, just so you know, unless you look at the the notes section, it's not going to do you any good. And hopefully I've written notes because sometimes yeah. I don't. <laughs> all right. Well, Trion, thank you so much for those answers. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a second. Hey, everybody. Thanks for allowing the quick interruption. Just want to let you know about two things. One, we'd love to have you subscribe, like, and comment here on the Visual Lounge, whether you're watching on YouTube or your favorite podcasting platform. Two, go check out the TechSmith Academy. TechSmith Academy has a ton of great free resources about making videos, about using images, things that will help you get through some of those basics. Share it with a coworker if you're trying to teach them about some of the things about video. We'd love to have you let us know how that goes. There's surveys in most of the courses as well, but we'd love to hear from you. You can always email us at thevisuallounge at techsmith.com. So send us a message. Tell us what you like, what you don't like. What would you like to see on the show? We'd ha be happy to hear from you. So with that said, let's get back to the show. All right. Welcome back. Trion Mueller is here with me. Tr Trion, let's talk about uh, Chief Learning Architect. What that's That's been a role that you've had. What does that what does that even mean? That was so fascinating to me because we hear a lot, a lot about C-suites, right? Chief uh, operating officer, ch uh, you know, chief executive, uh, you know, what, what, what's a, a learning architect do? That's a great question. You know, like with many titles, I think the title might confuse what it is, but think of um, solutions architecting. Think of people that are problem solvers. And so that's what I do in this learning space. I, I lead with first really getting to understand what a client, you know, the person I'm working with, what is their learning and development challenges there, the obstacles, the, the limited resources and the opportunities they have. I really dig deep. I call that excavation. I spend a lot of time excavating what is it that they are struggling with? Where are they now? And then I try to understand where they want to be. That's again, between A and B, it's the space between. And then what I do as a chief you know, learning architect is I help them architect the right bridge between A and B for their unique company, their unique culture, their unique learners and employees. Um, and when you're architecting in this space, um, you have so much to work with, especially with technology nowadays and videos and images. It really allows you to decide, okay, how do we get them from A to B? And again, B needs to be attached to success metrics. And what are the options we have to build in between? So it's really something that you become um, a bridge builder as a chief learning architect. Okay. So I, I'm guessing a lot of that plays into like an overarching strategy for learning within an organization, right? Like you're Correct. looking, you're looking at, you have to look at tools because tools, they matter, right? Like what can we actually do? What can we build? Do we have a hammer when we need a hammer? But let's talk strategy for a second, because I think for a lot of the people who might be listening to the show or, you know, even even myself, I, I, I start thinking about strategy and it's like, oh, man, you know, in grad school, because I, I have a master's like you, instructional systems technology, very similar kind of program. They taught us a lot about like designing like the modules, the thing. But what we didn't talk about that is that much bigger holistic strategy as much. And so I'm curious for you, what is what is learning strategy look like? What are kind of the. Um, you know, what are the considerations you might have for something like that? Uh, that's a great question. And, and as a chief learning architect or chief strategy architect, and I've had both roles, um, it, it's very, it's aligned, right? When you architecting something for someone, 
you are building it with a roadmap in mind, with a strategy in mind. Think about strategy as purely where you want to go and how you're going to get there. And how do you know when you get there that you were successful? And also over how long of a period of time. I'm a big believer in getting small wins quickly, mm-hmm. building a phased approach when it comes to architecture learning experiences. And, and that is strat. It's deciding what are the low hanging fruit? How can we get some, you know, often it's revenue uh, wins, revenue, achieve our revenue goals with some, you know, things right up front. And then we can start building upon that those successes with more successes over time in a phased approach. So again, everything I've said so far is related to strategy, which is, you're just wishful thinking and it's just building training events unless you attach success metrics. And those things and those success metrics have to be aligned with what the company is trying to accomplish and the, the goals that the company has or your decision makers or your um, stakeholders. You have to align what it is you are doing on the learning side, learning architecture. We're going to have this about development. This is in the seeds of the day. This is I'm an anti-training person. I don't believe in the term training. I don't like the word training. It carries baggage with it. I think we need to think differently and call it learning experiences. But strategy is basically the, the vision part of it. How you execute it is the, um, the phased approach. And uh, that's where you get into the details. Okay. So I, I really like this, right? Because I like what you said. You're, you're looking at kind of all the different things. You're looking at which which are the appropriate things to do now in terms of wins so you can get to that kind of that, if you're looking at the A, B, you know, what, what, where's the first pylon going to go down for your bridge or what, how, whatever type of bridge you're building. Um, so when you look at organizations, because I think this is the thing I hear a lot, is that organizations struggle, particularly learning and development departments, training departments, whatever their name is, they struggle with this idea of getting from that to that B with success metrics because... How, like what, what are some of the easy ones that they can look for to say like, yep, this is what we should be tying to, or is that all just like it, like it might just be super, it depends because every organization is different. What data I have access to right now might be different at the time to invest in it, et cetera, et cetera. So any suggestions for people struggling to get to that B, this, those success metrics? So, yeah, I love the question. I and mean, here's why it brings out a, a blind spot we have in businesses and in business leadership in the C-suite, and there's two blind spots. First of all, it's from the C-suite, which is, oh, we have a chief human resource officer or chief learning officer. We have someone over training. Okay, good. They need to go just check boxes for us, compliance boxes. Oh, we need sales training. They can buy some or they can build it. And it becomes this um, very separate entity to the success of a, of a company. So that's a blind spot that, C-suite leaders need to overcome because what they don't realize is if you don't build effective learning and development experiences, you're going to lose your people. So there's a metric, a business impactful metric, retention, especially nowadays nowadays in this world of of how many people are are leaving their jobs looking for different opportunities. So that's a very real one. Another one to consider is culture. And leaders are always talking about, we need to improve our culture. We need to impact culture. But think about it. The very, very first experience your new employee has with your company is the onboarding experience. And who's in charge of that? Your training and development, your learning and development groups, your HR. And if you don't empower those people to create great experiences, if you just have them check boxes and say, yes, make sure everyone goes through onboarding, 
and you give them a manual and they're done and they're out the door doing their job. Well, you've just adversely impacted your culture. And because of that, your revenue, your profits. Okay. So that's a blind spot that C-suite that I try to educate. When I work with clients, I try to work as many with as many of the C-suite as possible to help them understand that learning and development is not a check the box, something you do separately. It is a continuous process that you need to provide for your learners that needs to be, again, strategically architected to help them improve and grow over time. The second blind spot, it comes from those in the roles of overtraining and learning and development because what they, they fall into this, this thing of saying, oh, yeah, we, we don't have influence on the business metrics. And so that is incorrect in so many ways. If you can impact the business results with what you are creating with your learning and development, you now become relevant at the C-suite. So start thinking differently. Start thinking and what are, get to know what the C-suite is trying to measure. Learn how to impact those results with your circle of influence, which is huge because you deal with people and their development. So I'm very passionate about this. It's funny how we've fallen into this very weird place in, in the corporate America, in the world for that matter, where human resources is literally seen as resources and not as a, um, a benefit to the organization and its culture and business result. That is an incorrect assumption. Yeah, well, I, I, I love this because I, I love that you're putting the spin on it where off, so often we're just trying to measure kind of like widgets, right? Where you're now you're saying like, hey, the, these individuals have this real value. And I, the onboarding example, I think, is very pertinent because you you come through that first first experience, right? You're going to shape your whole view of the world that you're now entering into based on a lot of that experience, right? Because they're going to tell you, this is how we are. This is who we are. And if those things don't measure up, it's like, well, do I believe this? Do I trust this? Am I, do I want to be here long-term? And so I, I think there's lots of, lots of great takeaways there. I will say that, you know, one area I see that this is a slightly different is the world. We talk a lot about customer education on the show where uh, businesses are focused on educating their customers. And I, I do see a lot more of that kind of thinking. I feel like it needs to now be pulled back over to our HR departments, to our learning, training, development, the people that do onboarding or compliance training or these other things to help them, you know, uh, their employees be safe, to be to be productive, to be valuable. Resources, assets, people. How about that? Valuable people. <laughs> and that actually brings up another point. I love that you, you mentioned that because it's funny how in the actual learning and development space, um, there's been innovation, but it's been slower than in other areas. So I often look outside, not often, I always look outside of the L&D space for where innovation is happening, especially around consumer behavior, consumer um, you know, actions. And you just mentioned one where people realize because it's a design thinking principle. They, they realize if you have something that's client-facing, yeah, you're going you're gonna to build it differently because you think in your brain it has to look better because it's competing with all the other noise that's coming at them. But guess what? That same individual, I call him a mutant learner, that you are trying to appeal to is the same individual that's working for you, which is also a mutant learner, someone who also has a lot of noise and other things vying for their attention. So just adopt the same mindset of this, the same human-centered design thinking that you have with I am facing products, whether it's tech or whatever it is, 
apply that same thinking to your employees because they that's the same people. Yeah, I I love that. And they are the, you know, same people. They're just in different seats at the time, right? I'm learning a, a tool, I'm learning something else. Well, let me ask you this. So we move from let's shift a little bit from strategy to, you know, you're making starting to make some decisions about the modalities, right? How am I going to do these things? We know what B looks like. We've measured got our success metrics. What are some of the criteria you might be using to help you determine like modality of a piece of learning? You know, whether you're deciding to use video or images or interactive modules, what, what are some of the considerations that go through your head? So I use a, I created a tool called the, uh, the ARC or the um, Instructional Design Architecture Tool. And this is what, um, you know, you can provide it to your listeners. I can give it to you as an interactive PDF. It helps you to, um, it becomes a framework for instructional designers, especially as you are building a new learning experience. Okay. And so first of all, what I think is important to understand is we, we in this learning and development space have to be minimalists. We have to recognize who our learners are. These are busy people. We've spoken about this already. Lots going on in their lives. The last thing they want really in, in most cases is to also have to do, and I'm putting in quotations, training, especially if it's the boring old crap that they are familiar with, right? That's why I like images and I like videos. But here's the key. I, I believe that you take the content you have to work with. You break it down into its smallest standalone bite sizes. This is a process I use on the ARC and that I suggest people do. So you might have it in a certain format with certain chapters and certain breakdowns now. I would I'd suggest taking, leaving that aside for the minute and saying, okay, if I were to break down my content into its smallest, again, standalone bite sizes. So these are usually principles that can stand by themselves. You need to create the connective tissue, but that's later. They break it down. And then what you do is you say, okay, for this piece of content, this principle I'm talking about, what is the best modality to get this principle into the heads and hearts and activities of the learner? Now, when you do that, you're not leading with a solution. You're leading with a problem. Because often what we'll do is we'll say, oh, we're going to build this new sales training and we're going to use an authoring tool like Lectora or um, Captivate, Articulate, or whatever, whichever authoring tool you're thinking. So what you've immediately done is you've limited the learning experience to what the authoring tool can provide your learner. Now, some learn authoring tools are pretty robust. And and that, my friend, is unfortunately one of the only ways instructional designers work today is they default. And that's one of the principles of my book is don't default. Don't click the default setting. They default to what they know and have been comfortable with. And that's often working in an authoring tool and creating a long form. And even if it's micro, it's still limiting your thinking to an authoring tool. That's just one modality option you have. The choice might be simply to do a two-minute video. That's it. Or it might be an infographic. Maybe an infographic for that one principle. Maybe it's an interactive one. Is the solution that's best suited for your learners. But if you forfeit everything into, I'm using authoring tool as one example, but it's for anything. Right. If you try you LinkedIn, for example, and you're forcing everyone to do um, video first, right? And that might not be the right solution because video is not always the right solution. No offense to you guys, but 
No, I, I, we're we're good with that. We understand that principle. We, we also like images. I'm kidding. We we no. It's 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 a really good point, right? Like you can't you can't just say it's always going to be this because what if the thing you're trying to do doesn't need that? What if that's too much? What if it's too little? Actually, that's why you you want to you approach everything. You think minimalist. You think what's what's the leap I can do to get this message across in the quickest way, and and then it also becomes less expensive. By the way, with that thinking. What, what you end up with, by the way, is a very interactive and diverse experience that is more conducive for the mutant learner. It's something that they do enjoy because it meets them. You've, you've spent the brain power to find the right modality for the principle that they are trying to learn, and you've done it in the quickest way. So you've done the hard work. They just consume it that way, and they thank you for it. Yeah. Well, 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 I love that. Right. So, and I, I think it makes a lot of sense. You always go to the kind of what's the smallest thing that you can do. Um, so I want to, I want to shift gears here because we've talked a little bit about video. I, I know you, you mentioned you, you like video. We, we maybe have just said not everything can be a video, which is true, but I'm curious where does, cause we're, this is a show about images of video. You knew we we're going to talk about it. So I'm curious in your mind, what is that role? that video should be playing. And I know there's lots of other modalities we that people can talk about and we, we don't want to rule those out, but we're a show about videos and images, so let's talk about them. When When is it you're like, yes, video makes the most sense? Because I still get this question a lot. They're like, well, when should I do a video? And for you, Trion, what, what are you thinking? Like, what's your kind of gauge whether a video is the right tool or not? Yeah, it, it really it does depend when you use video and which way. I wrote an, um, well, I created an infographic actually that identified 10 different fun ways that you can use videos. And um, it includes everything from a talking head to an interview style to um, using animation to uh, throwing in graphics over audio. There's so many different options of things that, that you can use. But again, like with authoring environments, you want to be careful that you don't force fit anything. And so I'd always ask the question, instead of leading with the question, how do we use video? I'd say with this content, what's the best way to get what we try to accomplish with this principle to my learner? And if it is video, in what form does it look? Are, are we asking an expert? Is it going to be a role play where we show a bad example and a good example in a video? Is it going to be some kind of a branching video? You know, it depends. Here's some things to keep in mind about video that I love. Four reasons that I believe video has truly become what I call the king of this learning space. First, it's deep-rooted, right? It's an integral part to our everyday lives. We use video, we're using it now. Mm -hmm. We're recording this podcast or video cast in video. We Facebook is TikTok, Instagram, um, LinkedIn. We drop in images and videos all the time. Um, but YouTube has changed how we think. YouTube is such an underrated, and sometimes we don't give enough credit to how YouTube has changed how we think about video, including accepting videos that aren't necessarily Hollywood quality videos. It's authentic, right? And then you get things like The Office, right? And we know it's not reality TV, but they made it look like in some ways there was reality TV. It wasn't your high production Hollywood show that with action sequences and stuff. So it's deep rooted. How we think of video, it's part of our lives, Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, you name it, Prime Video. 
we we just use video and we participate more in video than we ever thought we would. So that's deep rooted. Two, we we invested in it empowers and rewards our participation. Think about this. So we all are consumers, number one, and we also producers of video. Sometimes it's just very basic video of my granddaughter crawling on the carpet, right? That's me producing. But I also like consuming videos and with laughing at shorts or watching long form. The third thing is they simple and simple, it's easy and fairly inexpensive for anyone to engage in, right? We all have video capacity on our phones. And so we can become our own directors. So it's simple to use, to publish, to even edit nowadays with the authoring environments we have. And lastly, it's memorable. Uh, we, we've known the principles, the research behind this, but images and video make things much more memorable than just writing on a page. And um, it's just, these are the four components and reasons I think that video especially is king in this learning yeah, I, well, I, I love all those examples, right? And I, I was as you were talking about, it, I was thinking, yeah, okay, like yeah, the barriers to entry for video are just so low. It used to be it was really a big deal. I remember, gosh, getting a video editor on your mach- like your work machine or computer. What not only was it expensive, it was slow and hard to use and difficult. And then you know, then getting a camera, let alone getting the footage off the camera, it was like a five step process, right? Like so. Just all these these barriers have been eliminated. And then, well, I love what you're saying about like, you know, it's memorable. It's we we think, you know, we think a lot with visuals where we are drawn to watching things move or drawn to watch like things that are visual in nature. So uh, really great stuff. So let, but let me ask you this. Let's look maybe a little scenario here for a second. So let's say I, I'm coming to you and you're you're consulting me. I'm, I promise I'm not asking for free consulting here, but and my team is struggling. They're like, oh, we've got this problem. And we're trying to decide between modality A and video. Are there questions that you would ask? Like, because you've laid out a lot of really good reasons of why video. But what are the questions you you ask? You, maybe your checklist of things to go through. Like, does this make, does this fit for a video? Are there, are there things like that? Or are you thinking you just got to kind of suss it out, work through it, and make sure it, it works? Well, that's a, that's a very uh, broad question. Bec- well, because of the possibilities that are right, and the variables involved in that. Um, again, w- what I would do is instead of saying, "Let's look at ways why you should use video instead of another modality," I'd first need to understand what other modality. I need to understand what the principle or content was that we try and what the learning objective is for that principle. Um, that would inform. Again, it's going back to my ARC tool. That will inform whether what what if it's video, what type of video, or if it's another modality. Again, I would always lean on the side of simplicity first. What's the simplest way to get this across in the most elegant way? Because simple sometimes looks like crap. So when I say simple, I don't mean crap. I mean it has to look good. Quality nowadays, people don't accept um, poor quality anymore because they can go elsewhere and find better quality. So the nice thing about the author environments that you guys provide a text about this. Man, you can create anything from really just basic, boring stuff, or you can create some cool experiences very quickly and very simply. Well, thank you for that. And, and that's what we try, right? Simple, be, yet you can also be elegant or more complicated, if you will, more professional, whatever, whatever the right term is. So, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, just to kind of wrap around on the, and finish up on this question, you know, I... I'll just offer the the idea that I often look about like what what is video good at, right? It's good at showing things. 
It's good at depicting movement. You get that duality of uh, audio and video together. So that's what I know, you know, regardless of the, what the other tools can do, that's kind of, does it yeah. make sense for those things? So, but I, I love your answer nonetheless. It was, it was a great one. Now we're going to wrap up here in just a few minutes, but I want to, uh, uh, so we'll get to our speed round. Just, I want to talk real quickly because you had another framework and I just want to hit on this framework because, I, you know, I started looking at it and uh, if you could walk us through the CARES framework, and like, so when is that beneficial? And what, I guess we should say, what is it? And when, when might it be beneficial to help me in my kind of this learning creation journey? Yeah. So I've been working, um, like I said, I think before for 20 years in the L&D space, but for the last 15 years in that space, I've been testing um, and researching how to effective, how to create effective learning experiences, how to know if it's effective. So Luckily, I'm, I'm coming out of the book again in January, and it's called The Rise of the Mutant Learner, like you said in the introduction. But in that, I introduced this CARES Learning Effectiveness Framework. So there's two main use cases for the CARES Framework. The first, and, the, and by the way, this is for both uh, for instructional designers, uh, mostly, and for those who lead instructional designers and are over learning and development experiences. Okay. So the two use cases for the CARES Learning Effectiveness Framework is one is to evaluate any current learning experience you have, whether it's a course, a module, program, is to evaluate it for the likelihood of it, that experience, achieving the change, the desired change that you wish, that you want out of that experience. So it becomes an evaluation tool. And I have a, it's called the CARES Efficacy Assessment that helps in 15 questions, gives you a score, gives you in five minutes, doesn't take long, but it's, you wanna do it for the smallest modules if possible, because it gives you more value then. The second use case is if you are an instructional designer charged with building a new learning experience, you can use the CARES framework to increase the likelihood of that learning experience, getting the behavior or the other changes that you desire and to, the way I suggest people do that is using the ARC tool as an instructional design, you know, almost like a storyboard, uh, but it's, it's a framework that you use. And, the, and CARES is there, the success metrics, um, as well as different modalities, including video. So th those are the two use cases, to evaluate existing and to create new learning experiences. Okay. So I'm assuming it's all going to be in your new book. So everyone's going to have to go check out in January, your new book. I, uh, I also, I did find that in some other places. So if they search for your name, they can find some more information about it. But it sounds like I was really, I was really excited about looking at it because it's like, okay, this looks like it's got some really great uh, ideas behind it, ways that you could, you could start helping to kind of level up what you're doing as you think about your content. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Well, Trion, this has been awesome. I, we're going to, we're going to go, we got a couple more questions, but they're in our speed round. So let's go ahead and, and jump into that. Okay, for those who might be new to the show, speed round questions are meant to be fast answers, so not one word answers, but short answers. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna, we've got 12 questions that potentially ask from. I've got, you got blue or green? Do you have a dice preference? No, but just go blue, sure. All right, it's good. It's got gold flex in it. So, you know, let's go here. So we're gonna bring up our dice tower. I'm gonna roll the die and we're gonna ask our first question. Here we go. And it always happens off the table. It's like, you know, it doesn't count. Oh my gosh, we're going to go green. It doesn't want to stay. 
<laughs> there we go. All right. So that is, you can tell it's a nine because the line is underneath it. I don't know. Hopefully that will focus. So here we go. Question number nine. Is there, your, is there a question you wish I would have asked? So something that you wish I would have asked that we could have talked about today. No, it isn't. So I'm going to help kind of think of something <laughs> in pretty thorough. So you might have to cut this out. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's good. I mean, that means we've, hopefully we've done a good job at asking the relevant questions. The real trick is what people put in the comments. Like, why didn't you ask him about this? Uh, so, so we'll see. Okay. So next die roll here. 11. Okay. I should have shown that on screen, but guess what? It is an 11. I won't prove it. It's no, no, uh, nothing needed here. Okay. This one is uh, also related to your stuff. What is one resource that you think everyone should know about? It could be your resources. It could be any resource, something that might help us beyond what we talked about today. Well, I'm a believer in um, creating productivity processes that make your life easier. And so David Allen, the best-selling author of Getting Things Done, I was sitting at his table, kitchen table in Amsterdam and I was doing some work with him and, he, and his wife around getting things done and improving the, the product. And I asked him, because one of his principles is to capture. Okay, how do you capture all the information coming at you? And he introduced me to an app called Brain Toss. That's Brain T-O-S-S. And I love it. It allows you to capture notes, video, audio, and then have it sent to however you organize with. For me, it's my email. And that's how I keep my life organized. So that is one way that I um, improved the ease of my life, capturing things and brain toss. All right. Well, I love that. And I, I, I did see that work that you were doing with David Allen. I was like, okay, is that all right? That's pretty legit. So yeah, you've got some great experience from your past life here. Uh, awesome. I'll have to check out brain toss. I love, I don't know if I can organize my life via email, but I'll, I'll figure something. I'm still figuring might out. Be, might be another way. <laughs> there might, let's hope. Okay. Let's, let's one more question here. That is a 10 on the die. So that's, that's good. Okay. So very broad. What's next for you? Anything uh, coming up besides the book or in addition to the book, I should say. Well, the, the, again, working on something for 15 years on and off, right? It, it's, it's a huge um, endeavor. I'm very excited for it to share my learning, my failures. Um, you know, just sometimes things come over time. And I'm really excited to share that with the world and see where that um, that takes us. I'm tapping into some of these great researchers that some of you have heard of, like Bloom and Kirkpatrick and David Merrill, and um, some of their ways that they used to evaluate the efficacy or performance of different training or learning experiences. So I'm excited to add um, value to that discussion. So that's uh, my quick answer. Hopefully that helps. No, no, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Trion, before we... We're going to do our final take in just a second. Before we do that, where could people connect with you, find more information? Where are they going to be able to find your book? Okay. So LinkedIn is the best. Just, I'm going to give you one thing. I do have a website. Uh, it's all available and accessible on LinkedIn. That's also where I'm keeping um, tabs on the book. And I'm, I'm, still, um, I'm still trying to figure out if I want to publish with a publisher or self-publish. The book is pretty much done. It's just now a matter of what do I want to do for distribution? And so I will keep people informed on LinkedIn. Awesome. So go go connect or go follow 
Trion as we do that. So Trion, the last thing we like to do is just ask kind of final take. It's a 30 second summary of all the things that we've talked about here, your, your best wisdom. So with that said, what's your final take? The final take for me, my summary on what we discussed is, you know, images and videos are great. Um, keep them short, keep them elegant, keep, um, make sure that you don't force it though. Be a minimalist as you approach, not just video and images, but also other modalities for learning and development. And when you do that, you keep your mutant learner in mind and they will appreciate you for it. Awesome. That's a great final take. Trion, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I so appreciate you, all your great wisdom and expertise and look forward to seeing the book in so hopefully in January. Great. Thank you. Awesome. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. We're always happy to have you. If, you know, if you like what you're hearing, like, subscribe, leave a comment. Let us know how we're doing so we can get better. Go look at Trion stuff. It's really good and really useful stuff. Hopefully got a lot out of our conversation. With that said, we'd like to end the show the same way every single time because we hope that you do this. It's wherever you are, whatever you're doing. We hope you take a little bit of time to level up every single day. Thanks, everybody. 